good evening. It's good to see you all again. It's my um, desire <laughs> to finish Psalm 23 next week. It's more in the psalm than I thought. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> I want to make sure I'm handling it rightly. So this evening, we'll look at Titus chapter 2 with a focus on verse 11. Titus chapter 2. <clears throat> So out of respect, would you please stand? <clears throat> Titus chapter 2. Thank you for your prayers for my family. It's much appreciated. <clears throat> Paul's letter to Titus, his son in the faith. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober grave, temperate, sound in faith, and charity, and patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach their young women to be sober, to love their husband, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works and doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Amen. Thank you for standing. Please be seated. <clears throat> Let's pray together again. <clears throat> Our Father, how thankful we are that we have this great privilege to stand before you, to hear of your precious word. Father, we've heard the best part already. We've read it. And now, our Father, we ask your help. We ask your help, O oh God, in proclaiming your truth so that we together would see Jesus. Show him to us, we pray. And hear our cry and encourage our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Anyone who's read 
the New Testament. Anyone who have read, who has read the letters or epistles of Paul would know from the outset that Paul is a man gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He loved to preach it. And if we read Acts chapter 16, it didn't tell us exactly what he said, but I think he loved to sing it. He and Silas in jail. And he loved to write about it. He wanted to see sinners rescued, gripped by the same gospel. Sinners of every stripe, every background. Paul wanted to see them believing on and walking with the Savior. If men, women, and children are going to be saved, it will take a power from on high. You believe that, don't you? It will take a power outside of themselves, a power to invade their lives in order to bring them into God's royal family. That power is God himself. The sign, the mark that we have been birthed or born into God's kingdom Maybe I should say the signs will be love for God, love for his people, and holiness of life. Can I give that to you again? Love for God, love for his people, and holiness of life. In other words, we have to walk, we have to live in obedience To the word of God because we have been rescued by the God of the word. This is his grand purpose in saving sinners. His grand purpose is to bring them into fellowship with himself and to make them like his son. So this evening we're going to take up the grace that saves. The grace that saves context to the passage. Like I say, our key verse is verse 11. The context. Paul, again, is writing to his son Titus in the faith to remind him of the reason why he left him in Crete in the first place. He was to be about the father's business, setting in order the things which were lacking things that required immediate attention, holy teachers preaching holy doctrine for holy living. That's Titus' goal, if you will. That's his charge. Titus, you need to be teaching good, sound, healthy doctrine so that we can have good, sound, healthy people. Titus was to ordain men to the work of ministry in every city. Titus has a job on his hands. The Cretans had a description, if you will. The Cretan had a reputation. It's not a good one, by the way. Number one, it was said by their own, one of their own, a prophet, that they are liars. Now, I don't know about you. (laughs) 
You can call me some things, but liars is not one I want you to call me. A liar. I tell my children, you don't want to ever be called a liar. That means you're unfaithful, right? And you're untruthful. Can I throw that word out? Untruthful. You're not faithful and you can't be trusted. They were known as liars. But Paul goes on to say, they were also considered evil beasts. Ferocious. What a description. And Titus is in that place. Not only that, slow belly. They were lazy and gluttons. That's a bad description. Liars, ferocious, and lazy and gluttons. I don't know if they had all you can eat back then. <laughs> Buffet. They're lazy, and they're just gluttons. But Titus is to be distinct. He is to be different from false teachers in Crete who had God on their lips, but not in their heart. They profess to know God, but the lives told something different. The life told the story. They had defiled, polluted, and contaminated minds. That's what he tells us in chapter 1. They had the talk of Christianity, but not the life of Christianity. Your life and mine speak all day long. Do you know that? All day long. It's not simply that we should talk Christianity, my brethren. We have to live out the truths of Christianity. Titus was to declare the truth of the gospel, which was according to godliness. As I said, he was to teach sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, because he wants to promote sound, healthy, godly living. So where the gospel has been embraced and worked down into the soul, the sinner, the sinner, by the power of the Spirit, lives differently. He has to. He lives differently. He, he, if I could say it this way, let me just use it this way. If you take a, a cucumber and you marinate it, soak it in vinegar for five to seven days, it becomes a what? Pickle. It's changed. And it's changed forever. It can never go back to what it was before. Never. And Paul is saying, Titus, I want you to preach this truth because I want the people to have a pickled experience. I want them to be marinated and soaked in the grace of God and be changed forever. Titus has a job on his hand. He is to dress different classes of people. The older men, the older women, the young women, the young men. Sign like the model of a, of a church. You need, you need old and young. You just can't have all young and you just can't have all old. You, you need zeal, right, and energy, and you need wisdom and experience. Tell some pastor friends of mine all the time. I said, if you don't have any crying babies in your church, you, it's not long before you have to call hospice. 
it's a congregation that's going to die. You got to have both. The, the old can push away the young, and the young can't override the old. It has to be balanced if you're going to have a good and healthy church. So the old men ought to be grave, serious, dignified, worthy of respect. Not silly. Not, that doesn't mean you shouldn't laugh. Not silly, silly, but serious. Men who have self-control, firm in the truth, steadfast to the end. And the older women ought to honor God in their behavior by reflecting a life of godliness. Ah, some ways of doing this is to have a control over your tongue. That's hard, isn't it? As Paul says in chapter 2, you got to have a control over your tongue. You have to have self-control. You cannot be slave to alcohol. And they ought to wrap up the younger women around the arms or around the shoulders, if you will, because they are watching. Do you know that, do you? Young women watch older women just like young men watch older men. Also wrap them up. Young women are to be encouraged and urged to be husbands and children loving, self-control, caring for the home. Subject to their husbands, not all husbands, but their husbands. So that the word of God would not be defamed, blasphemed, made a mockery of. Our lives matter. I hope you believe that. They matter. We don't want to bring shame on the word of God, but we ought to live in harmony with the message that we say we believe. We ought to do that with all of our might by the Spirit of God. It's not enough to have good doctrine. Maybe I should just put that a different way. You've heard me say this before. It's not enough to have good doctrine. Can I put it a different way? It's not enough to have good doctrine. You have to have good practice. Israel had good doctrine. Israel had a good covenant, if you will. We can have a good covenant. We can have a good confession. You can even have a good Bible and not live any of it. They had a good confession. They had good orthodoxy, but they had bad orthopraxy. The young men ought to be self-controlled. In every category, Paul is telling each group, you ought to exercise self-control. A young man ought to function and be discerning so that they could have, quote, good judgment or make good judgment, walking in the way, exercising good sense. My, I got to tell you all about my little short, four foot, whatever, 11 mom. She used to say to me, boy, act like you have some sense. Tell my children the same thing. Act like you got some sense. That's what Paul is saying to the young men. You need to act like you have some sense, good sense. You have to have some self-control, self-restraint in all areas of life. And Paul goes on in chapter 2 to tell Titus, you ought to be serious and sincere about preaching the word of God. You ought to be example in all things, Titus. You just can't preach and not do. You have to preach and live as well. 
We all, my brethren, are walking sermons. Good ones or bad ones, but we're walking sermons nevertheless. We have to live our lives as walking sermons everywhere we go. Everywhere we go. We cannot have, we can have, as I say, sound doctrine without having good, sound practice. We have to believe the truth and embrace the truth and live the truth. Not only is Titus to be an example, but also slaves are to be pleasing and obedient to their masters in all things, not arguing, not stealing, but wearing the gospel faithfully so that in all things God will be glorified. And that brings us to verse 11. The origin of grace. The origin of grace. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Paul gives us that connecting word, for, for, and I think there's a reason why he gives that, that, that word. All that he said, if the older men are going to be what they're supposed to be, if the older women are going to be what they're supposed to be, if the young women are going to be what they are supposed to be, and if the young men are going to be what they are supposed to be, and if Titus and slaves are going to be what they are supposed to be, it will take the grace of God. Everything is built right here. It will take the grace of God. <clears throat> what is this thing, man? Grace. That's actually my next point, but let me just say it this way. The grace, then, the origin of this grace, the text tells us with three words, grace of God. It's the origin. It's from God. It doesn't start from the earth and work its way up to heaven. No, it works from heaven down to earth. It's a supernatural source. You can't, you, can't go to, you can't go to Baptist Hospital and get a shot called Grace. You can't download it off Amazon. You can't buy it off of eBay. You can't get it from Walgreens. You can't get it from anywhere except this outside source. It comes from God himself. It's not something tangible you could touch. But I would say this right here. Even though... We can't touch grace. We should be able to see the effects of grace. Are you still with me? We can't see it just like we can't see the wind, but we can see the effects of the wind. And what quote, we can't hear it, so to speak, but we should be able to see the effects of grace in someone's life. Grace, then, is seeable in the life. We, we, we can't look upon someone's heart. Paul, I know some of us wish we could. We can't look upon someone's heart and say, see, saved by grace there. God, he just does not give us that insight. We don't have some, some needle that we could watch and say, oh, almost there. Not, 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 not quite, but almost. Oh, we don't have that. Nevertheless, grace is seeable in life. <clears throat> I always say, 
Uh, well, let me just move on. Uh, I love sometimes when we say, man, that's all right. We, we, at least we know his heart is in the right place. How do you know that? We make, we make those things. His heart is in the right place. You don't know that. You can't know that. It's impossible for you to know that. No, my friend, my friend, my friend. The only things <clears throat> we have to go by is what we hear and what we see. That's all we have. You don't have any other insight. When we look at a life, we have to look at it. We have to go by what a person says and how they live. You don't have anything else. The only one who can see within deep beyond what we could see is the living God. That's why Jesus warned us to say you have to beware of what? Sheep that come, I mean wolves that come to you in sheep clothing. I mean, it can come in undetected. Because all we see is what? Clothing. <laughs> we can't see further than that. No one can work up this grace. So what is this thing called grace? It has been defined right as God's divine unmerited favor. That's the simple way we've put it. God's unmerited favor. And I like it. But I like to just add a little, give another flavor to it if you don't mind. If it's God's favor and it's unmerited, you can't rent it, you can't buy it, you can't work for it, you can't earn it. That's a fact. But let's see if we could see it this way. Since it's not tangible, right? Grace then is God moving in the sinner's direction for his own good and for God's glory. If God doesn't move in the sinner's direction, upon the sinner and within the sinner, he will remain the same. There will be no change. At least no internal change. We can change some habits. You can stop eating chocolate cake if you were eating chocolate cake. Maybe you could stop going to the buffet if you were going to the buffet. You could stop some habits. But habits, if we're honest, are hard to break, aren't they? Sometimes you say, I'm going to stop this. You know, there's New Year's resolutions that really don't work. We find, out, we find out over and over again, the arm of flesh will fail us. It's God moving in our direction for his glory and our own good, our own well-being. It's God coming to us. And if we are going to be rescued, God must, and I use that, must come to us. Or we won't be rescued at all. It's God looking our way and making, quote, the first step. Carrying out the initiative. Carrying out the plan. Carrying out the deliverance. Why? Because here's the natural state of us. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Notice the word, wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a bad description, but it's an accurate description of mankind. The world, know, the world knows it can look at everything going on and say, there is a problem. The world knows that, just has the wrong solution. 
The heart is the issue. We all suffer right from heart failure, don't we? Congestive heart failure. Fail to love God and fail to love our fellow men from the heart. That's heart failure. The heart is the issue. And that's why God said, I'll give you a new one. Because that's exactly what we need. Grace is God moving in our direction for his glory and our own good. Has nothing to do with homeschooling. Has nothing to do with being a clever businessman. Has nothing to do with attending church or any of those things. It's God coming to us in spite of us. That's what he does. Doesn't matter if you were brought up in the godly home, per se. That's a good thing. But it's salvation coming to us by God himself because salvation does not flow through the bloodline except one, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. Doesn't flow through family bloodline. The Jews thought that. They thought wrong. It's the blood that is drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That's where sinners plunge beneath that flood and lose all their gift. Guilty, guilty, guilty stains. It's God coming to us. It's the worthy one coming to the unworthy one. It's God making a divine intervention. Grace coming to us. He comes transforming and to transform to make us lovers of God, turning us from haters of God to lovers of God. From an outcast into a child, right? Adopted into his royal family. We were outcasts. We don't deserve to be in God's family. No one does. We said, God, thank you. Thank you for mercy. We know we don't deserve it. Well, that's what actually the word mercy means. You don't deserve it. That's why it's mercy. If you are, if you are where you sit, you are converted, made a child and saint of the living God, it's because he came to you in grace. That's why. So it tells us that God is the possessor of this grace. It belongs to him. Therefore, since it belongs to him, listen carefully, he can dispense it as he pleases. It belongs to him. He can do what he wills. He can move how he wills. The grace then is sovereign. We already said it's divine. It's also heavenly. It comes with authority. Grace that's royal. It's a kingly grace because it comes from the king. Therefore, it's undeserving grace, right? Because we don't deserve it. I love it that in the Greco-Roman world, I've said this before, I'll say it again. In the Greco-Roman world, grace was showed to friends, never to enemies. Especially in a legal setting. You showed favor to your friend in a coach setting. But here is God doing something to shake up the whole world. He comes and he demonstrates and he shows grace to enemies because he has no friends. Did you, let, me see, let me see if maybe that just went all over everyone. He has no friends. Everyone was God's enemy. 
And God does something remarkable. He does it different from how everyone else would show favor to those who are friends. He said, no, I show my favor to enemies and make them friends. That's what he does. And that's what he did. He demonstrated his grace. Enemies received no favors. I said, no act of kindness because they were enemies. Except from God. God does something remarkable in that he has moved in the direction of the sinner in order to rescue him and make him a joint heir with Jesus Christ, an heir to his throne and part of his royal family. We should rejoice. We, could, we should rejoice. You mean to tell me you took your heavenly fishing rod and, and reeled me in? You brought me to the family. You adopted me into your family. You came on a 911 rescue call and rescued me. And now I can say, Abba, Father. God desires then that we ought to demonstrate gratitude for this rescue that has come to us. The grace, God moving in our direction for his glory and our good. But that's the origin of the grace. Let's look at the description of the grace. It's right there in verse 11, still. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. This grace is described as something that bringeth salvation. <clears throat> now, don't be caught by the, by the word because when we look at it, it kind of looks like a salvation that is kind of look like a noun, but it's really an adjective. That's why I'm calling it a grace that saves. Paul is saying to us here, there is a grace and it's a saving one. It's not just anything I'm talking about. I'm specific in what I'm talking about. The grace I am talking about is a saving grace. It's effectual, if you will. It accomplishes its end. It's a rescuing grace. It's a delivering grace. <clears throat> and it comes by God himself. Now, we don't need rescuing unless you're in danger. You don't need to be rescued. You don't need to be delivered from anything unless you are in danger. The, the problem is, by nature, we don't know we're in danger. It's like a person doesn't know. If you talk to someone and you say, man, you're blind. They have no clue what you're talking about. Because I can see you as plain as day. See, you don't realize you are blind until God gives you sight to see. You don't realize you are dead until he makes you alive. You don't realize you are in darkness until he brings you into the light. And they say, I was in darkness. I was blind. We understand spiritual things when he makes spiritual things real to us. Other than that, we don't understand spiritual things. Paul is right. The natural man can't even conceive of these things. It's foreign to him. And if you're honest, at one point it was foreign to you. This grace is saving. It saves people in danger. It comes in rescuing power. It ropes us in. We are in danger with God. I know we don't realize that by nature. 
but we are in danger with God. And God rescues us from himself. <laughs> I don't know any other way to put it. God rescues us, in a sense, from himself and then gives us himself. The wrath that we deserve, he makes a way of escape. Remember, the wrath that we deserve, he makes a way of escape from what we deserve. It sounds too good to be true, but it's true. He ropes us in and brings us to Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep. Not only is the grace descriptive, it's saving, it rescues, it delivers, but it's a grace that shines. And that's the emphasis, really, of the text. For the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared. The emphasis is really on the appearing of the grace. That's the emphasis. The subject, yes, is the grace, but the emphasis is the shining forth of it. Grace has appeared. It is something, notice, it is something that has take, taken place in the past. That's what Paul said. It has appeared. <clears throat> this means that the grace broke on the scene at some point. And we have to ask when. If it's something that took place in the past, when did it happen? Can I tell you what I think? I don't know why I asked you. I'm going to tell you anyways. <laughs> I think it happened when Jesus came. At least that's what John told us. Listen to it. He told us that the word that was with God in the beginning was God and that that word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Listen, full of grace and truth. But he didn't stop there. He said, John bear witness of him and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. But he's not done. For the law was given by Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He burst on the scene. God moving in our direction and Jesus Christ. <clears throat> he came to magnify the law and make it honorable, the law that we broke. <clears throat> and I understand how the older writers would say, you know, we are sinners, disease, disease, so I agree with that. But we are criminals, and we rarely hear that. Criminals by nature, we committed, listen, we committed crimes against heaven. High treason against heaven. Sin is criminal. It's crimes against the almighty God. I will not have this man to rule over me. It's outright rebellion against the almighty. Criminal. All of us ought to be locked up in God's prison called hell, right? For crimes we've done. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. That's our description. We've sinned against the Most High. We have offended the Most High by nature. We are in bondage to sin. We are in darkness and under His wrath, and He moved in our direction to set us free. 
The angels could even bring a message <clears throat> saying why Jesus himself appeared, listen, to give light to them that sit in darkness. That's actually Zechariah. The light to them that sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. But the angels now, by saying these words, the message of the shepherds, fear not for I, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. What is it? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. It's the best, one of the best messages we could ever hear. Imagine what was going through the shepherd's mind. Unto you is born this day a deliverer, the Savior, the Lord. Notice, he was Lord then, and he's still Lord now. So this glory, this glorious thing of the grace of God springing up on the scene in Jesus Christ. It's God again moving our way. God took the initiative. God came down, wrapped himself in flesh in order to rescue. That's what he did. And we see it in his life, all through his ministry, his march to Calvary. One purpose in mind. And that was to rescue sinners. He was literally born to die. Rescuing us from ourselves. Somebody doing something with the clock. Let me just say this. The extent of the grace. Not only the description of the grace, the shining forth of the grace. Well, let's see now the extent of the grace still in verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. All men. What in the world does this mean? Does it mean all in an absolute sense? All without exception. This grace of God, remember, it's a saving grace, that has burst on the scene, moving in the direction of all men, without exception. Or does it carry what I'm calling a non-absolute sense? Why would I say that? In verse 15, chapter 1, Paul says this right here. Unto the pure, all things are pure. I'm just sticking with those two words, all things. He uses it in this entire epistle. All things. Unto the pure, all things are pure. Is that in the absolute sense? Is everything pure? To the pure? <laughs> no. <laughs> I will wait. Oh, y'all always No, let me say it again. No. Unto the pure, all things are not pure. So what does Paul mean by all things? Servants, slaves, obey your, obey your master in all things. That's what he said. Everything they say you ought to obey. Is that what he means? Does all mean all? All the time? You see all? Or is he using it in a restrictive sense? I'm glad you asked that question. Let me see if I can answer. In light of the context and the different groups Paul is speaking to, older men, 
older women, young men, young women, slaves, Titus himself. In light of the different groups he is speaking to in the context, it seems that this grace has come in a saving way to all kinds of folks. That's the seem like from the context, unless we're taking all to mean all. This grace has come to all kinds of folks. Older men, older women, young women, young men, slaves, and even the preacher. This grace. <clears throat> the gospel, listen, I've said it before and I'll say it again. The gospel doesn't address sinners as elect sinners. It just addresses you as a sinner. That's what it does. It comes to you as a sinner. That's how it comes. <clears throat> we ask sometimes because we get caught up on election because we find it in the scripture. God does elect and we get caught up and say, why does God elect some? That's the wrong question. The question should be, why does God elect any? That's the question. He already had a son. Did he need any more children? No. Especially sinful ones. No. Did he need any messed up children when he had an unmessed up son? <laughs> he did not. He did not. God does not show grace to people because he has to. He shows grace to people because he wants to. He wants to. This gospel message came to you as a sinner, and it called upon you as a sinner to repent and believe the gospel as a sinner. It's good news, but it's not good news about man. It's good news about God. He moved again in our direction. I'm going to keep repeating that. He moved again in our direction to give example how God comes to us in our sinfulness. Let us take Abraham, a man who was an idolater. God went to him. It's not that Abraham went to God. He was an idolater. We have it spelled out in Joshua chapter 24 when God said, I came to Abraham and I took you out. I love it. I took you out and I led you. <sighs> he rescued Abraham. And who can ever forget about that old cheat called Jacob? Who could ever forget about that? If you look at Jacob and Esau, some of us would take Esau. He seemed to be the better of the bunch, right? He wasn't conniving or anything like that from what we can tell from the scriptures. We see his revenge, so to speak, marrying a woman that his parents didn't approve of. But when we look at the life of Jacob and Esau, you have a cheat. And you have someone else to seem to be all right. And yet God went to the cheat. His ways are past finding out. Grace met him. And what did he say when grace met him? I am not worthy of the least of thy mercies. That's what Jacob said. Zacchaeus, the underhanded tax collector. Who could ever forget him? I'm just talking about the kind of people that God saves. Not clean-cut folk. Folks who have no issues. No, God saved the worst of the worst. 
God specializes in messiness. And he does a great job. Jesus could say, Zacchaeus, come down. You're staying at my house. Who could ever forget Mary Magdalene? Out of whom he cast seven devils. <laughs> who could forget about the demoniac? A man who was out of control, out of his mind, and out of his clothes. Who could forget about him? He was homeless. Oh, yeah, Jesus went to the homeless. And rescued that man so that he could be under control in his mind and in his clothes. A change happened. He was pickled. Who could forget Saul of Tarsus? That murderer, that religious murderer, <laughs> a religious murderer. Who could forget him, thinking himself of doing God's service, and yet Jesus came to him. And who could forget that one we read of now, even though he's dead, he's still speaking, that filthy mouth, John Bunyan. Who could forget the tape? The ringleader, hoodlum, and God reached out and rescued him. Grace showed up. And this was what God does all the time. John Bunyan understood it. That's why he wrote Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. This grace then extends, extends. It has a universal aspect and then a limited aspect. Let me tell you what I mean by that in a simple form. God is saving sinners everywhere. Universal. And yet, it's specific that Jesus Christ gave his life for the sheep, but they're scattered everywhere. Universal and limited at the same time. <clears throat> we have to bask in the fact, we have to bask in the fact that God indeed has come in Jesus Christ to rescue us by his glorious power itself. He came to set us free, free, free indeed. Do you know something about this freedom? Has this freedom come to you? We said salvation is free, and it is. It's really and truly free. But salvation that comes to us freely costs God everything. It costs God everything. So in a sense, salvation is free. And in another sense, it's not because someone had to pay for it. Jesus paid for it by his own life's blood. Jesus came and lived for us. That glorious life, the perfection that we need, needed the righteousness that we needed, he performed. I was just telling my children the other night. I said, listen, a matter of fact, it was this morning. I said, a perfect righteousness is what we need. And we can't produce it. I don't care how hard you work. You cannot produce it. Perfect righteousness is what we need. And God will take the perfect righteousness that he required. He actually carried out in his son. What he required, he provides. And that perfect righteousness, he would credit to me. Because I have none. I am bankrupt. I have nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross and your son I cling. 
and he would take that perfect righteousness and credit that to me. Another way to put it, he would take all of the good doings of Jesus Christ and credit that to me and all of my bad doings and credit that to Jesus. What a transaction. What a trade. I wouldn't have it any other way. It doesn't seem fair. But I would not. But if we want fairness, we will be in hell. If that's what you want. So God gives me what he requires. I can work it up, and yet I have it. And now he would treat me as though I were always righteous. Maybe that just doesn't sink in. <laughs> he would treat me as though I were always righteous. As though I kept this law 100% of the time. As though I thought right all the time. As though I spoke right all the time. As though my motives were right all the time. As though my actions were right all the time. But it wasn't my performance. It was the performance of another. He performs and I reap the benefits. Hallelujah. Listen, he, he performs and I reap the benefits. I don't know any other way to put it. The sun of righteousness has shined forth with healing in his wings. And we receive the healing. We receive it all from God. We don't deserve anything, yet we have received everything. We don't deserve to be in God's family, yet he has adopted us into his family. We deserve wrath, and yet he has given us what? Mercy. Goodness. Glory. We deserve to be in hell. And we have the promise of heaven if you believe in Jesus Christ. Imagine facing that one. <laughs> Imagine just standing before that one. Imagine just saying you were, you were one of these ones with all of these crowns, that the crown of righteousness that Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Just imagine, because some of us, we just focus on all the, quote, crowns and gifts God is going to give us. I'm going to have many crowns. Jesus deserved all the crowns. That's why they're casting it at his feet. He did the performance. I reap the benefits. We ought to turn our eyes upon Jesus, look in that wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory, grace. God has birthed on the scene, and God has sovereignly come in Jesus Christ. And guess what? The earth is still spinning, which means he's still saving. Are you still with me? <laughs> He's still saving. Young people, listen. No one is out of the reach of Almighty God. No one. God can save anyone at any time. I told you it's just two things. Two things, and I'll say it again next week more than likely. It's two things that God has never seen. God has never seen a sinner he couldn't save, and God has never seen a situation he couldn't fix. He can save anyone at any time. And that's what this passage demonstrates to us. Slaves, free. Young, old. Everything in between. It makes no difference to God and he can save in a place like Crete with liars, ferocious people, and lazy gluttons. And if he could do that in Crete, he can do that in America. 
<laughs> he can do that in Africa. He can do that in Europe. And he does. God is constantly in the saving business. God is constantly glorifying himself. And I love it. God is constantly wowing the angels. You saved that one? <laughs> yes, yes. God saves people we wouldn't save. Uh oh, let me see if I can put that again. God saves people we would not save. And if you're honest, if you're honest, if you're honest, it may be some folks you wouldn't save. How do I know that? Well, I've been around long enough to know folks get mad with each other and don't talk to each other. <laughs> In churches, they get upset and they just kind of walk by. So if they kind of walk by, you think they're going to save that person? If they could? You may save somebody just to make that person like you. I'm going to save them so they can treat me better. My neighbor giving me a hard time. Listen, if I had the power to save, I'd save my neighbor just so my neighbor could treat me well. God doesn't operate like that. I'm glad he doesn't operate like that because he saves people we wouldn't save. We argue about God's selection and salvation. We would do the same thing if we had it in our hands. I just gave you an example of that. We would do the exact same thing. We would be selective. I'm not going to save that person. I saved that one. I'm not going to save that one. I saved that one. Oh, that person owes me $5. I'm definitely not going to save that person. People leave churches, don't talk to each other for years. For years. Hallelujah, that salvation is in God's hand, and he saves, listen, the highly unlikely. I don't know if it happened to you. But I just say this and then we'll be done because the time is gone. When some of my high school classmates found out that the Lord saved me, they said, not you! What happened? Not, not you! What happened? He saves the highly unlikely. No one. You can ask anyone in my high school. Is, is that, would that boy there be a preacher? They said, no way. <laughs> no way. Not him. Never, ever, ever, never. Not him. Because God saves the highly unlikely. And he does it to bring him glory and to shock everyone around. And that's what he does. He's into shocking business. And he does it all the time. And that makes this gospel beautiful. It's about Jesus Christ and his life poured out blood on our behalf. And that glorious resurrection that shook up the world, that changed history forever. And the one on the throne now at the Father's right hand will one day, as one of the brothers prayed earlier, return in all glory. That's going to be a lovely day and a frightening day at the same time. He will be glorified in the saints. Glorified in the saints. And guess what else? Apply his judgment to the ants going to be a shocking day and a terrifying day at the same time. May God help us to see the sweetness of this grace that he has done in moving in our direction, coming to us in spite of us, loving us freely in spite of us, and making room at the cross for us. And because of that, we ought to shout glory. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you again that you have indeed, have indeed rescued sinners. 
not because we are deserving of the rescue, but because you delight in rescuing. And thank you for sending Jesus Christ to live for us and to die for us, to rise again for us, Lord, even to plead for us. Thank you for those bleeding wounds, those bleeding wounds. Oh, Father, how they speak for us within the veil. We bless thee for the king. Strengthen us to meditate upon these things and to love your son supremely because he's worthy. Hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand. Excuse me. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Amen. God be with you till we meet again.